Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. Thank you to the uh, welcome to the weekly recap where we summarize uh, what we learned during the during the week today from our guest speakers. Hey, hey, Alti, I'm up. Hi, sorry, I didn't. I, Hi. I thought Hello. I scheduled it. I'm so sorry, everyone. I think it's the first time to be here for me. Oh, hey. Oh, well, hello. Nice Welcome. to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. It's my pleasure, really, to be to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, so on Sundays, so usually during the week, we have um, invited yeah. speakers, and then on the weekend, we just uh, go ahead and, um, and, like, summarize everything we talked about throughout the week, if people missed it. So that's basically what we're doing. Yeah, anything you've learned? It? Yeah, exactly. So we usually have during the week uh, yeah. guest speakers, scientists that uh, come to talk about their research and uh, teach us about their research, basically. And mm -hmm. um, so we have that almost every day. And then on the weekend, we have a room to like summarize everything. Yeah, great. And amazingly perfect to to create like this room yeah so we... it was really wonderful thank you <clears throat> i hope everyone is well um i just opened the room let me set up the topics yeah, i i think i'm a misunderstood uh the the messages or, or the things that you you've learned during the week because uh, for me um because i i want to level up my english skills and speaking skills um i'm only focusing with uh how to sound like native speakers um, that's why i learn every day i listen every day to just um make a great progress in learning English, you know, and that's great. Yeah, and all what I've learned during the week is just many words, advanced words. <laughs> but oh. I, I don't think so. That this is gonna relate to, to your topic, you know. Yeah, that hour is all kinds of science topics. So in the meantime, you can also learn some, some English. Really? Just learning well, about science and English. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, on the recaps, you know, some of us have missed the rooms, some of the rooms during the week. So we we get conversational yeah. about what, uh, you know, what was learned and what was discussed. And it's, you know, pretty free flowing. So um, mm. welcome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, so the first... Um, on Monday. Hello, Hi, Jamie. How Hi, are Jamie. you? Hi, Jamie. Thank you. Sorry, So, we had the intro meeting earlier, um, but Dr. Tool will be here later. He, he wrote me a message. So, um, you know, we will sp still have that intro meeting just a little bit later. So, 
um yeah so on monday this was an amazing week i think at least for myself i thought it was a really amazing um week we had um so many guest speakers and doing amazing work um and um yeah i i learned a lot and i hope you enjoyed it too and if you didn't if there's anything from the recap that you think you can um you're more interested in just uh, feel free to then listen to the actual replay and um yeah let's get started so as i said on monday we had um dr felici here um he um is in switzerland um at the swiss plasma center um in lausanne switzerland and he is um a research um scientist there working on a nuclear fusion and he did a collaboration work um, that he presented here the link is on the top of um, the room uh, to basically control the the plasma with um, with AI with DeepMind and um, so what you have basically to to generate um, at some point to make a nuclear fusion happen and that it generates more um, output energy than the energy you put in one of the hurdles is to control the um, the tokamak plasmas uh, with um, using magnets so you have to have a very strong magnet and control these plasmas and that has been quite challenging. So the approach they took here is do we, uh, doing this through deep reinforcement learning. And um, it, it, it worked um, quite well. And um, yeah, just for everyone that doesn't know why nuclear fusion is important to continuously doing research on, if we get a stable uh, reaction, we would be able to generate so much energy in such a cheap way without having any CO2 emissions that would basically solve all of our energy problems and also, um, you know, a lot of problems that humanity is facing. So, um, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to add something. Well, oh, I missed this controlling... room. Oh, go ahead, sorry, James. Sorry, Serena. No, no go, go ahead, James. I was just going to say, plus controlling plasma with electromagnetic fields is very, very cool. <laughs> very Star Trek. Please carry on, <laughs> Definitely so. Well, I, I missed this room, so I'm, I'm you know, really interested. It's, a, it's actually um, a really cool application for AI as we we currently know it in, in terms of there's this very rapid and complex kinetic control that has to be achieved. And um, it's it's far away from, you know, the, the, the questions of consciousness or thought or anything of that nature, but um, actually a very uh, tight coupling control system. And so it, it does lend itself to um, 
you know, to the kind of advances that we, you know, that the contemporary approaches may actually be able to realize. I'm interested in about um, what are what were the you know the main results that were shown, and and did it really represent uh, progress over more classical control theory, or the um, more traditional techniques to try and rein in the plasmas with um, controlling the fields? Yeah. So the machine learning um, approach here. Um, like DeepMind came up with different um, strategies that um, haven't been tried before. Um, so basically um, the access position and keeping the plasma basically in line. Um, in the, and they tried different shapes um, to have basically uh, the plasma boundary in an ideal way to for this reaction and um, yeah the machine learning approach they came up even with having two um, two uh, plasma called, boundaries yeah yeah it was um, it droplets that were called and um, mm -hmm. it basically um, came up like with different shapes and different ways of doing that that they didn't um, they didn't demonstrate it before and uh, figure two if you click on the if you click on the paper and figure two it demonstrates the capability of this approach um, they have um, they came from uh, 0 0.1 second to nine uh, 0 0.9 seconds uh, to have this basically um, um, plasma alignment, um, and then you can look at the um, the shape and then the the, the growth rate. So um, it demonstrated that uh, you could have this vertical stability and position and shape control uh, could be achieved at the in a more fit or in a more stable way using deep learning well and so and it was clearly uh in contrast to the previous results so that that there we, like we couldn't currently do this without they did something new with deep mind that we couldn't do in classical ways yeah i believe it was the deep learning was um responsible for was it 10,000 calculations a second or something like that like it was able to um keep stability please correct me if i'm uh, misremembering katarina um but there was like, so many calculations that were happening every single second um that the, the deep learning was able to uh, continually sort of like adapt and and correct itself for it to keep a stability going and then they were making all these shapes like snowflake shapes, which were superior to just making the elongated ones, if I remember correctly, um, showing the control and showing how best they can use it and everything. Um, uh, please correct me, did I mess anything up with that, Katarina? Well, that yeah. particular rate of calculation isn't, you know, it, it just depends what you're calculating, but that, but, you know, classical control theory is very mature and in, in the people that work in these fusion reactions, um, 
you know, aren't, they're very good at what they do. I'm curious what new, um, you know, what, what was it, uh, was the deep mind approach actually able to show something that they just, you know, really couldn't do before? I think the two droplet thing was definitely one, um, because he said that putting the, the two, um, lobs of plasma and changing their shapes at the same time was something, uh, that was definitely new. Uh, wasn't that right, Katrina? Well, they came up basically with more shapes that they didn't come mm. up before uh, with. And um, additionally, um, they this could um, more actively, like, um, had the ability to rapidly and directly create a current ideal configuration under the active um, study, basically. So it can constantly adapt, basically, the, conf the ideal configuration. Um, so, and um, they also, um, they also came up with uh, new configurations that nobody came up with before to operate in high performance discharges. Um, that was another thing that um, that this method basically um, came up, like that this approach um, enabled them to do. So these new configurations, um, they could test the control of these droplets that you see in the figure, these blue droplets, um, and in which for example, they came up with where two separate plasmas exist within the same vessel simultaneously. And um, this is probably um, an approach, for example, another way of stabilizing this droplet. And um, do you know if the um, diffusion folks are going to adopt this? I mean, was it such a groundbreaking thing or was it um you know uh yet another demonstration of deep mind that that you know is a, just a demonstration and, and isn't going to make its way into production i'm not sure about production but they are still continuing to uh improve this and and work on this um he was very careful to make any claims about when we actually go into production for plasma, mm -hmm. like for a nuclear fusion. He hopes that like in the next 10 years, this will be helping, you know, to pave the way to actually put, have nuclear fusion in production. So, um, yeah, but um, they still say there's still investment and investigation required to develop a feed-forward uh, coil current programming mm -hmm. that can be implemented in real-time estimators and to uh, tune control gains and successfully take control after plasma creation. So that's still something they have to, and they are working on, so. I believe we did also still make the proviso that he didn't see it ever happening in the future that the AI would be taking control of the whole thing. Um, he pointed out that AI was like very powerful and important 
and taking over, say, some calculations allowing like the human to monitor uh, overall, because I think there's the question, um, could AI essentially just take control of the entire whole process? And he says, um, he says he couldn't really see that being something that would be, pos- you know, advisable or uh, at any stage like this. That like, oh, human oversight. Well, is well still sir, yeah, you don't. Right. Yeah. You don't yeah. hand over the fusion reactor to <laughs> to deep mind. But what right. you what it I would imagine what it would look like uh is starting to examine some of the, you know, the trained networks that perform well and how those might be cooked into FPGAs or actual ASIC circuits for more performance of those algorithms. Um and it just if it were to start to uh you know, if you could identify pieces of function that you want to pull out and, and focus on and burn into to ASICs, um, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that, you know, progress would look like uh, in towards adoption of this. But uh, it's interesting. It sounds like, sounds like they, you know, they have something, but, you know, whether it gets adopted, you know, we can, we can watch for. But yeah, yes, they, were... yeah, yeah. Oh, they say that this um, this was basically a successful hardware experiment um, of, um, you know, of controlling this plasmas. And I, I, it was just the first time they were able to demonstrate that um, they could uh, come up with advanced shapes to control um, this plasmas um, without uh, needing to um, fine tune it by hand by humans um, on the plant uh, constantly. And, um, and they used um, this free boundary equilibrium evolution model. And that this model um, is um, has a good enough fidelity to develop transferable controllers which um which they think they can take this uh, type of approach to um test control um future devices so basically for now i think when they design new devices that they can um calculate and predict well what fine tuning and and what shape would be the best and most most stable one um yeah did they say did they say anything about their their training protocols i mean i imagine there were simulations in the training set um but they actually got to control an actual reaction and hold it stable longer than before and did they comment on the training protocols? The DeepMind team was not there, um, so we didn't talk too much about the um, detail mm-hmm. of um, how they trained um, and so on. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. but maybe well, he he was really nice and pretty open to coming back. So we should. We definitely told him we will invite him back and hopefully with the DeepMind team to have more details there. I, I have his presentation. Let me, let me, should I? 
at the presentation. Oh no, we just used, I'm sorry, we just used the paper actually. I thought okay. that we had the presentation. But yeah, he didn't go too much into detail, like not more than than a dis discussed, um, you know, that the neural network architecture that is discussed in the paper. Uh, they use an MPO with two neural network architectures, um, the critic network and the policy network, and both networks adapted during training, but only the policy network was deployed on the plant. But yeah, they used the, they used this to really control a real, um, you know, hardware plant, basically. Um, it's fascinating. It's certainly something to watch for as um, progress continues. The, um, the inputs were combined with the hyperbolic tangent function value and uh, com the last commanded action and fed to a long sh short-term memory LSTM layer that was 256 units wide and the outputs of the LSTM layer uh, fed to a multi-layer perceptron MLP and um, uh, that had hidden layers of 256 latents each. And mm -hmm. each of these layers used an exponential linear and nonlinear unit nonlinearity. Uh, they used the linear to output the Q value. Um, yeah, and so on. Like um, pretty, pretty standard stuff. I mean, yeah, it's amazing exactly. they got anything at all. So. I suppose if you know if they are on the road to adoption, they're not going to tell anybody for a while. Um, so yeah, certainly something to look for, though. The batch size was two hundred fifty-six. Uh, yeah, it's nothing really out of the. You know, they just use their deep mind stuff mm -hmm. to try it out, basically. Because there's often, I mean, there's active research in trying to apply those techniques to autopilots um, and uh, you know autopilots has a has a long history in rocket science of you know that's really where a lot of the you know the make or break code uh, has to be expressed is that that tight control system and um, you know so far I'm not aware of, I've, I'm aware of research level results but um, as far as anything that would you know, win confidence of actually fielding, I haven't seen yet. So it's interesting to um, to see that they actually had some successes on, you know, Tokamak. Um, yeah. yeah. They used also episodic training approach. Uh, so there's a control policy in the loop. Um, yeah, I mean, those just sound like standard plays for the day. But uh, yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing really. Uh, stochastic policy is represented by a diagonal Gaussian distribution over coil actions. Uh, yeah, and then you know they had the parameters of the size of, of the droplets, and so on. But yeah, it's nothing really. 
so it's amazing that that they offered something that the more classical control theory couldn't couldn't get a handle on so that's really curious yeah they used yeah um, yeah the reward function is also nothing really out of the ordinary hmm. crazy yeah cool yep and the, the shape targets they tried both that's you know this that they were specified manually or not um yeah he also mentioned that um yeah and when they didn't they came up with like this completely different um approaches i mean it's like this was low-hanging fruit for them yeah that's how he also like he <laughs> said okay i contacted them and they immediately said yes and it's pretty cool that it worked basically type of thing <laughs> so pretty yeah. cool it worked <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay i'm waiting for my energy bill to drop <laughs> i hope you're comfy <laughs> So we have next the um, we had Dr. Bolton here uh, talking about mental illness um, early related to early stress, like early life stress, and how glia function is affected. That was a pretty cool. Oh, is it not working just with the DOI? I'm sorry, I have to go. This was a cool talk. I was at this one. With the microglia, yeah. Yep. That was really cool. Well, this is right. This is the one where the um, essentially the mice are born too sensitive, and the glia has to go in and prune the synapses to get it into a more effective range, so they don't just freak out all the time. Exactly, and like that, the glia are highly involved, and. Um, that this early stress um, induces like induces that the glia don't prune if um, enough during development and there are too many excitatory synapses and um, this then an adult later on leads to like way too stressed out or vulnerable um, that in adult they are vulnerable due to stress and they don't have like um, adequate stress responses. And she used like uh, really cool tools that people usually use for neurons um, in glia. And um, yeah, I, I was really impressed. And uh, this was a really, and it's also a really pretty paper. If you want to see pretty images from glia neurons, Oh yeah, it was. <laughs> That's how you get the cell on your own paper is having these pretty pictures. But it really seemed like the result was um, transferable, and and we had this discussion about, um, you know, the impacts of stress on on childhood experiences and how they have this prolonged effect throughout adulthood. But it was such a clear physiological display that if you know, in a developmental period, if you don't prune those 
synapses down or if, and if there's too much stress you don't do as much pruning it has the consequence of being oversensitive throughout adulthood that's pretty profound yes it is yeah i agree and i invite you to click on the link and there's a little video uh, to see where you can actually really see in a time lapse um, the plasticity of um, microglia processes dynamics it's so cool <laughs> it's really impressive uh, video it really was yeah it's, but uh, it really goes to show that it's it's not just something you know uh, it's not a psychological effect. There's this anatomical architecture that will conspire to just make you overly sensitive to your environment because it wasn't properly pruned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this for sure has underlying epigenetic mechanisms. So what they are going to do next, like I asked them about this because we did, uh, I did in a lab, um, some point maternal separation as a stress model and we saw um, in adults differences in gene expression and she will also uh, do that uh, do some rna seq experiments but i i we saw differences in oligodendrocytes in the prefrontal cortex uh, mainly which was really interesting and um, yeah i'm curious to see what happens in those my like what what they can detect in the microglia um yeah so i hope they have a laser capture or something where they can um cut out a fresh uh specific cell types so that's what what we had uh we i i um had a mouse model that had the fluorescent marker in the specific cells we wanted and then you can have a laser that uh, targets those and then you you capture you capture that tissue just from those cells it cuts out in 3d and then you you can specifically do rna sequencing on that so yeah it's a pretty oh, cool, cool. that sounds really cool it's really expensive. It's from Leica, but the Leica one works really well. Uh, it's pretty cool. You can capture like, like an hour. I don't know, hundred cells or something, and and then send them out to see. Do it a few times, and then you can send them out to sequencing. Yeah, but it's pretty expensive. But there are some some universities have this as a core facility. We were just lucky to have this in the neighbor lab, but yeah so let's see i'm curious to see what she what you will get out of it because it's for sure some epigenetic mechanism that regulates that throughout life and it would be then also interesting to see in the future if this goes on to the next generation or not this vulnerability or if there's an age-related vulnerability like there's so much you can do from <laughs> this is just a starting point right you can go now right. and these mice and see if they have higher vulnerability for Alzheimer's and females, Parkinson's and male and, you know, all this stuff. So, yeah. 
Well, I remember asking, because one of the figures that she produced uh, uh, showed was in the, um, I think, MERT treatment, um, M-E-R-T. Uh, it was it. How did it work? But in in the control group, it looked like it induced more resili resilience. It had less of effect in the stress group because um, I think they were already so inhibited or something. Um, I'm not sure. I can't quite remember. But the um, in the control group, it it looked like it could have produced more resilience. And I was asking if if she characterized the behavior of the control group with, with such a clear measurable effect. And that was something that she was going to look at. But that would be kind of interesting if, um, you know, if, if there's if there's a knob there to tweak about, uh, you know, more resilience uh, based on a developmental phase. So. Yeah, and the interesting thing is I think they had less, um, they were less prone for addiction, which is really interesting because we did motivation study. Uh, so if you have less motivation for a higher cost to press a lever for something, so less motivation usually is also less prone to addiction, <laughs> which a reviewer made us write because he kind of stated all kinds of negative things. And he said, okay, you have to also write something positive about this. Uh, <laughs> and we said, okay, they are maybe less prone to addiction <laughs> than a review. <laughs> hey, Serena. Huh? Hi, everyone. How are you defining resilience? Well, so I, I, it was a term that she was using. So I used her term, but it was, uh, in essence, the so they were uh, basically the impacts of a stressful environment had less of an effect among the re, you know resilient groups or at least that's how i'm trying to use the word i think that's how she used the term is um they're less prone to be overcome by stress in other words they're more able to function in stressful situations does that make sense Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's so many factors. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's good to know yeah. what, you know, what in this context. So it looked, yeah, it looked like in one of her treatments with the, with the mouse that the, the mice that had, uh, in essence, a, a normal nurturing upbringing, they added this treatment, and they seemed to be even, or it was the suggestion that they would be even more resilient than normal as opposed to the, the test group that was, that had a more stressful upbringing. Or I should say the control group with this treatment looked like they would be more resilient than the control group naturally, was what was interesting. But the, I don't think they had the scope to look at that, but that, you know, Looked kind of cool. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I prefer, like, I like resilient, looking at resilience. I think it's way more helpful for coming up with treatments, you know, that help people to look at, okay, you induce the stress, like, what are the possible resilient mechanisms? 
that could come out of this all because you know you can't possibly avoid all stress all your life <laughs> it just doesn't work that's not how things work so yeah like physical resilience um i mean physical manifestations or emotional manifestations or um you know maybe there's something that somebody's suffering that isn't noticeable until years later because they are showing what appears to be resilience but it's actually lack of um i don't know lack of proper self-care you know what i'm saying it's such yeah i think this was more direct in the sense that um at that appropriate development phase the microglia are conditioned to prune a little extra so the mouse grows up a little extra sensitive to stress so they're better able to perform in stressful situations because you know the whole ramp in cortisol and anxiety and all the consequences of getting stressed out just doesn't occur as easily as the normal mouse so it's, it's an it's really interesting um physiological fact that has an anatomical basis but has would have these profound consequences in your you know ability to cope with stress because it, it things just wouldn't bother you as much in the first place in principle yeah i think it's it's one of these studies that um, are really amazing because they open up so many new avenues of research um, so and this is one of these studies you don't just write it in the paper to get the nature publication or sell or whatever it is actually a study that will lead to many more uh, studies so uh, i think it's really interesting and she will have a lifelong like based on this she will have a lifelong projects to do and grants to write and stuff so so it's yes really she should be on our list to invite back yeah. see how she's doing she's probably on some hot stuff well maybe can i sidetrack a little bit in this in this same vein of something it, it makes me think of when um in classrooms in a conventional classroom kids are being taught mindfulness and in a way um to me it's teaching kids how to cope with with a, um, with a cruel situation, you know, that, that schools really need to be transformed and, and not um, subject children to, you know, things like standardized testing and, and, you know, being in a situation where you're comparing yourself with your peers and that kind of thing. Um, so I'm, that's why I keep thinking of, you know, like what is, what are future uses of this information? You know, how resilient, do we want to, you know, just which emotionally resilient, physically resilient, and when is lack of resilience really a good way to have a kind of a, um, you know, a thermometer that tells us, you know, we're not we're not surviving here, and what do we need to change? I guess that's what I'm trying to say. You know, like a, um, you know, when does lack of resilience is it so necessary because it can sound an alarm, so that we're not um, you know, looking at creating autonom automata that can deal with um, 
nasty changes in the way we expect people to survive. Thank you. That was my sideways. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I mean, because in some cases, like, well, even in, in the example you used, um, increased resilience might help you with coping with being bullied. But you don't want everyone to just not care about being bullied. You'd want to address the bullying. Right, that's yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but having resilience gives you the strength to fight back, right? To not just uh, mm -hmm. freeze and do nothing about it. And that's how we measure it mostly also in animals. If they just freeze or if they try to either avoid it or do something about it. So that's why I don't think uh, decrease in motivation is something positive, but you know, in order to be allowed to publish, we kind of had to say something like that. But um, so that's for sure not an increase in resilience to have a decrease in motivation or just being more uh, compliant. It's um, I don't think bouncing back or resilience has anything to do with uh, just letting people walk all over you it's the strength to do something and bounce back and and get back to your life and not just become depressed and and can't uh, you know speak up or do anything like that's for sure not being resilient uh, we are not saying yeah. just you know shut up and 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 continue the like letting this happen to you that's not what i think the definition of resilience is it's just something terrible happened to you and you're able to out of that situation um, continue and improve your life and do something about it and, and well so and like can take the example of either you know a combat surgeon or someone delivering humanitarian aid into a conflicted zone um, there's all kinds of stressful things that are going to happen. They'd have to have a great deal of motivation to just endure them, and resilience would help them continue to function on that, in that endeavor. So it's that yeah, I agree, Katarina. That you know, you, the lack of motivation it would just you know they wouldn't do that in the first place. So they're they're two different things. Yeah, it's just a depressed state for me. Like if you just keep letting it happen for me it's just a depressed state and um yeah that's not uh what we mean by resilience it's quite the opposite actually so that was a really cool study i hope we can have her back and see how she's doing yeah yeah for sure we'll invite her back uh, maybe like in the fall, give her some time. <laughs> okay, we had uh, next uh, Dr. Bulani, and uh, he is uh, really interested about um, fatigue versus uh, energy. Um, and he um, did a lot of research in that um, area. And the cool thing about him, he has a really multidisciplinary background that um, kind of, I think, um, 
is what enabled him to do this um, quite um, multidimensional studies that he's doing. So he also teaches um, physical therapy and biology. And um, he um, measures, like in, his, in this research, the focus is measuring energy and fatigue. What is, what is it actually to be fatigued versus having energy? And understand how energy and fatigue impact function. And then um, how he can develop intervention to improve uh, these moods. And um, they are also actually using machine learning pr to predict energy fatigue depression and anxiety currently. So, um, and in this um, study, he also looked at the gut um, bacteria. Um, uh, but his talk, he tried, he gave a really good background information about the definition of energy versus fatigue, um, how um, different types of treatments could impact these states and um, how diet also influences the gut microbiota composition and um, how for example one food group like processed meat was um, correlated with um, with these different moods and how they negatively impacted um, uh, energy and um, yeah, I think it was a really great talk that gave us a great overview um, over definitions and um, energy versus fatigue uh, moods and um, how you can be always trying to attempt to basically um, help people um, that are experiencing fatigue. I, I think it was really interesting. Yeah, this was a really cool talk too, because I, but I didn't, it was at such a high level, I couldn't quite get a good, um, you know, understanding at a, at a lower sort of physiological level about the distinctions between, you know, that he was making between energy or the lack of energy versus fatigue. Do you, do you recall what was the, how does he really separate those? I don't think he goes to the physiology, he went to the physiology level yet. Um, um, yeah, it's more about, I mean, he mentioned then biological correlates of energy and fatigue, what, um, what was measured, you know, in previous studies to be involved, like dopamine, anexine, um, mitochondrial function, resting metabolic rates, um, metabolic gut microbiome. And then, yeah, in the study, he looked at the metabolic gut microbiome, but also fatigue was more, he correlated more with serotonin, histamine, and then inflammatory um, markers. Uh, but I think he, his study goes more into like the behavior uh, analysis and like traits of how the gate um, is um, and the mental energy he did, he did like uh, tests that um, 
that reflect basically how your mental energy is right now, how you can focus, um, and then limp gates characteristics, and um, yeah, like especially oh, the, oh, yeah. the gate uh, characteristics were interesting, I think. And then social functioning, you know, he did all these different more behavioral and gait and posture related tests. Um, so, and then he he mentioned that he studied uh, how caffeine adapt, uh, like changes this with randomized controls, uh, which is not easy to do in humans to get any like significance. <laughs> it's really not easy because everyone has such a different life, right? And, and it's not like mice, you bring up the exact same way and, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think it was really interesting. Right, I remember him separating energy and fatigue with gait as, um, if, you know, you, you, if you're in low energy conditions, or was high, high energy conditions, you're more likely to make errors or proceed forward but you make errors, whereas in fatigue, you slow down. Yeah. And you don't make as many errors. So it's it was, uh, he separated them in terms of um, sloppy execution versus uh, slower execution, but still more precise. Yeah. And then he also did a study uh, looking at um, to predict what the post-COVID outcome is on fatigue versus energy. And his models, his machine learning models had like a accuracy of 68.4%. So tenfold cross-validation. And um, yeah, I. and then also he looked at what like uh, male versus female like for example um in f uh, women um energy when exercising with another person is higher and then in men um the energy is higher when they uh performing group exercise uh which i thought was interesting maybe it's that motivation to be like the alpha male in the room i don't know Versus women. Yeah, that was interesting how that set, how he actually got data that separated in that sense. Yeah. And what, and what does that mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's interesting that he looks at the data in such a different in different ways. So it means for me what I like about this how he he analyzed the data and the results he come up, comes up with is that he must have a relatively unbiased way and just look at the data and see what it says like not with having some assumptions that's a little bit to me what what his results show i think because it's not like this this classical streamlined story you know we looked at this and this was the outcome you know he has a lot of data and then that is what the data is showing so far and then let's continue to see how we how we move forward type of thing i, I like that mm -hmm. he had i thought a unique well it 
it wasn't, I, I, I really appreciated his sense of compassion and his ability to listen. And you were saying to, you know, interpreting the data that he did it with what, what should be characterized as an unbiased manner. Um, because he started the talk with acknowledging that different groups of people are living through sub and subject to different levels and types of stress, you know, that will show different outcomes. And specifically, he mentioned women will acknowledge mm -hmm. that and having a researcher acknowledge that and incorporate that into his presentation um, meant a lot to me and I hope that that's something that uh, we'll see more of. Yeah, I agree. And um, there's, for example, one neuroscientist that I know that does this, like uh, Miguel Nicolilis, he's pretty famous accomplished neuroscientist and he kind of went backwards uh, he developed all this very fancy techniques and technology, also what Neuralink is now um, using, because most of that stuff was developed in his lab at Duke University. And then he started to actually asking patients, what do you actually want me to do? Like, what do you need? Like paralyzed patients and so on. And then he said, okay, we don't need all this mega fancy stuff people want like very like people that are paralyzed or have other um uh you know um d disabilities to like solve everyday problems like they want to be independent in everyday life just you know get their own food and and, and without asking for help and so on and then he went ahead and developed um, technologies that are not so fancy in the neuroscience way, but just pretty relatively straightforward to um, help people in a non so um, in, um, you know, that you have to drill into the brain type of thing, because most people don't want that. So and I think he's He's in that regard very similar, and I agree. It's uh, it's not very common. You don't get all these fancy grants. <laughs> if you don't, we're actually helping people in a way they want, huh? Exactly, because <laughs> you have to have fancy innovation in there and this and that, and that's not what most people need right now to get help. Really cool. Yeah, novelty versus utility to the people who are actually being supposedly helped. You see this a lot in COVID. Yeah, like the grants, the fancy grants that you get a lot of money, uh, you have to have a big part is innovation. And what's innovation for a bunch of scientists that are sitting at the table to decide where the money goes? It's not like for sure something that you can right away uh, help people with. It's something you can help people with in the next 50 years, maybe, but not right now. So. Yeah, the sexy science factor in funding. Got to be new and sexy. So what he did, he created his own private institute in Brazil. 
so he is not depending on grants anymore and he can actually do stuff that actually help people right now so you know <laughs> another another reason to to do this with science society <laughs> i have to say i'm partial to the private research institution gig yeah <laughs> yeah well, that's another point you make up that shouldn't be novel or we hope that it will change is, is a person being asked what they need, you know, the patient being asked what they need, and then the doctor actually listening and responding. It's so unusual, but it makes so much sense. And uh, personally, I had that happen once I went to a chiropractor and the chiropractor said, exactly that where do you want to get to what do you want to be able to do and and it was astounding to me and and it puts the power right back you know with each of us so i think it really depends it really depends on people um you know wanting to serve and not not uh wanting to hold on to power for themselves you know in, in their in their position well it is the distinction between applied and and, and basic research in a sense um, but down to the level of personal medicine. You know, you'd think applied personal medicine would basically mean and involve asking the patients. <laughs> but as opposed to the very basic research that, you know, you want, uh, you know, a much deeper applicability with a new technology that's based on a breakthrough that, you know, if you only had that grant, you could get to. So, I mean, they are, they are different. Yeah, so that's why I suggested something people said I'm crazy a while ago. I suggested to make um, clinical trials public trials, basically. So all these companies and research institutions and clinics should put their clinical trials in, out there in a way that everyone can understand and um, let people sign up for them to the ones that make the most sense for them. And the clinical trials that get the most signed up patients will actually get the funding for it because that's what people actually need right now. So, but yeah. Here's a here's a thought. Has anyone done any the, the crowdfunding for trials like this? You know the way that they do for for people writing book projects and stuff like that. It's, it's just going to go there. Been... It sounded, Katarina. It sounds like this that would be the crowdfunded clinical trial. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Just... Yeah. You don't <laughs> ask from the patients the money. It's just what the patients actually want to get solved and get, you know, applied. That is the ones that you give funding, not like some fancy as bullshit, another aspirin type or whatever, you know, the stuff that people actually need. How, how, how do I know as some neuroscientist or, you know, that never had this disease or never had, you know, any of this, how do I know what, people actually need and want solved in their everyday life. Uh, I don't know. We should ask them.
that's the issue. Patients are generally not involved in the design of these studies. Um, and then with the whole funding part, so for example, there's a condition called dysautonomia and they do, they can't get a lot of, it's not sexy enough. So they can't get the funding. So they do have to resort to their own funding mechanisms. It's, uh, it's pretty terrible. So yes, I love those socialist ideas. <laughs> is that social? I don't know. It's just, you know, like ask patients what they need and what they want solved and uh, give funding to that. I don't know if it's, it's... Well, it, it's, fair, uh, it's fair to look at it in that way in the sense like for the example of pharmaceutical companies, they're going to want to sell you a pill that you have to take for a long time. They're not interested in a low cost cure. That's not their business. So yeah, that, that contaminates all kinds of things that, uh, you know, would be a sensible way to proceed, but you know, business gets in the way. Yeah. If a company can completely come up with their own funding, you know, that's their business then. But as soon as, uh, companies and clinics apply for public funding funded by the public i feel like that should be the way to go some some 10 academics in the room that never had this disease why would they be better able that's like this this arrogance and the snobbyism of people with the title i mean not like you had to go through a lot of shit to get there to get there but you still didn't go through having that disorder knowing what you actually need so you know like back in time when like some some old guys designed stuff for women <laughs> you know close oh, we're going there are we <laughs> <laughs> it's the same way right or some tampons and and pads and stuff like the same logic right why would some you know some old guy design what like a woman needs when she has menstruation okay on. so i remember looking through a really old magazine at my great grandmother's house when i was a kid and it was a good housekeeping magazine and there was an ad that was um <laughs> use Clorox every time you douche. And I, I, brought Ooh, this oh my God. <laughs> I promise you, I brought the ad up and I showed my great grandma and my great aunt was also there. And she said, Oh yeah, of course. Oh my God. So, um, yeah, there are two layers, you know, in there, but yeah, Jeez. what you said. <laughs> this was, so this was a ad written by like Trump's people. Yeah. Um, this was, um, a very old, uh, I mean, was Trump even, yeah, <laughs> it was bad. Let's say it was bad. By the folks that brought us Trump. <laughs> yeah. Like back in time, when you look at old magazines, how they were done, like women magazines was all done, you know, by men that, you know, 
didn't weren't good enough to do real stuff and then they came up with at advertisement for kitchens and and I don't know whatever they well engineering is another example where it's just it's so heavily dominated by men and the products that come out um, for women you know often reflect that well geez we really need more women engineers yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> for women by men. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. that really sounds like it's going to work so great, huh? Well, and it's, you know, you know, it doesn't reflect, you know, proper analysis of use cases and, and you know, the market that you're actually targeting. And, but even, um, yeah, there, it's, it's a deep problem in engineering. How oh, breast pumps used to be. <laughs> How brutal, like just that. Variations <laughs> so, from the farm, yeah. First of all, designers, you shouldn't be working. <laughs> so now let's torture you because you you choose to work and, and use a breast pump or whatever. <laughs> Anyways, we had um, uh, Dr. Gabelein here. He uh, talked about, uh, he's at the ETH in Zurich. Um, he is a researcher there and he will soon be actually at MIT. He is moving to MIT in the fall. And he talked about this mitochondria um, research and how he managed to, um, to transfer or transplant mitochondria between living cells. And um, if you don't know, um, the job of mitochondria is uh, making the energy that we need to live. And um, it has, like this, being able to do this technique will open a lot of new avenues for rejuvenation at some point, because if your mitochondria gets old, basically your cells it it makes a very just imagine having like an old coal plant in your in your cells that produce a lot of pollutants and then you have like the smog in <laughs> in old london all the smog going on and then everything dies so <laughs> that's basically what happens when it's <laughs> really old they make a lot of pollutants it was a particularly <laughs> grim rendition. Yeah. This is a, I'm trying to imagine the teeny little smokestacks in every cell in your body. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. And leaving soot everywhere. And the little yeah. a great visual, though. The tiny chimney sweeps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cell tries to cope with it uh, when you age and um, you know, clean up all the pollutants, like the freed radical leak. But at some point it just gets overwhelming and then, and then you start, you know, your cells start dying or mutating into cancer and so on and so forth. So um, this type of approach will, will be very useful for a lot of different disease states, like for aging, for cancer um, treatment, for um, re, um, 
regeneration of tissue. For example, in diabetes, we have tissue um, starting to die off um, for various reasons. Um, you can, with this transplantation of mitochondria, you could enable the tissue to regenerate after stroke and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, without healthy mitochondria, there's no life basically. And if you take young mitochondria, um, you can basically, um, yeah, make the cells healthy again. And um, this also gives a lot of insight in uh, what, you know, we mostly inherit, um, cell, like we inherit mammals, inherit uh, mitochondria from uh, the mother and they are really evolutionary um, conserved. They didn't change much. But the curious thing is actually that during lifetime of a cell, they mutate a lot. But then in the germline, they are so highly conserved, which is by itself a really interesting thing. And yeah, a lot of um, to do this transplantation, it will be interesting to see how compatible different mitochondria are if you can only transplant basically the same type of mitochondria to another cell, if you can mix them up and, and um, you know, a lot of basic cell function um, questions will be answered with this and uh, yeah I'm really looking forward to what is coming out next because you mentioned uh, to going into a bunch of these um, fields uh, in the rejuvenation but also looking at a basic cell function related to switching out mitochondria uh, putting news in so yeah it's it's a really, it's amazing. It's so cool. So I missed this talk too. Was he able to show results for successful transfers? Yeah. Or mm -hmm. How far along is he? Yeah, he was. He was able to um, to do this successfully. Yeah, it's it's not that easy technique to do. Uh, this um, you basically just imagine you have to. Uh, use this um this cannula to to suck them up put them on a string basically explain that they look like a a, a pearl uh string and um and look at if they are healthy enough and then um very carefully transplant them and yeah he showed uh, that they were accepted by the by the cells and by especially by the primary keratinocytes um he, he showed this and there's like in this presentation there are like images of um showing how much degradation was how much fusion um how much percentage in the cell so um yeah it's yeah it was successful it's quite amazing it's so amazing. Sorry, Serena. Go wow. ahead. No, I was just saying, wow. Go yeah, ahead. and wow. I, it, who thinks of doing something so tiny? You know, I, I'm just, I love that. You know, that he's thinking, you know, maybe got crappy mitochondria. Okay, let's give you some better. And and I wonder if maybe there could be um, 
you know, some something that could work alongside, you know, like, like how is the, the cell that has the newly transplanted mitochondria, how will they, um, you know, will they transfer this to other cells? Does it just need to be in one organ? You know, like, will they be able to outcompete the old mitochondria, cells with old mitochondria? And, and I think mitochondria are help transfer viruses between cells. So maybe viruses could help somehow. Yeah, so that, that's yeah. interesting that you say that he said they had recent um, results that a few innate cells of mam like mammalian and human cells do this transfer under very specific circumstances. So that's also something he wants to do now in the future to analyze exactly how they do this transfer and then use this in a real organism because that would be the only feasible way to actually do that so yeah right victoria <laughs> i almost forgot about this one well if it does happen under very specific conditions perhaps you could induce those conditions i don't know what they are but that would be something yeah 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 exactly that's what he said befriend the viruses I wonder if there's a way to uh, just do stem cells, implant them, and then they'll proliferate, perhaps. Well, stem cells would already have really nice, shiny new mitochondria, right? Or maybe it would be like in the case yeah. of a diseased stem cell you're thinking of, Dennis. Well, wouldn't the induced pluripotent from, say, like blood would still have the old crappy mitochondria, right? So I think this makes a lot of sense in tissue that doesn't regenerate um, a lot. Um, let's say heart cells, for example, don't uh, regenerate. They stay, a lot of heart cells stay the same throughout life. That's why you also don't get cancer that much in heart brain cells don't regenerate a lot. Um, there are different types of tissues that don't. And also then when once you age, in general, your tissue doesn't regenerate as well and a lot, or when you went through cancer um, treatment and so on. So, so there are different stages um, that um, basically um, inhibits the function of um, yeah, uh, regeneration of tissue, and in that case, uh, this would be really helpful. And there's also tissue types that don't accept really stem cells if you inject in them, um, or you just don't get enough stem cells anymore, especially in uh, aging. Uh, the, the quality of stem cells a lot of times not as good anymore to make a significant amount of tissue that it would be enough to actually help the patient. So with um, adding new mitochondria on there, you could basically uh, jumpstart that. Um, the, and uh, you could, you know, have even in all the patients have regeneration of tissue. It reminds me of uh, fecal transfer to 
um, balance out or repopulate gut microbiota. That's, but that one they just, um, yeah, I guess like you're saying, if um, the new colony comes and takes over from where there isn't, I mean, that's such, a, it's, it's like, of course, obviously gross, but such a great idea. Um, it sounds like, again, like out competing, you want that transplanted biota to out compete. Without what did he use? Did he use a tiny filter and a little tiny probe to do this? And a little so tiny, tiny needles. Uh, and um, yeah, now I switched the presentation, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll share the presentation. Like there's cool images on how how he did this. Uh, I think he did a really good job at explaining this in the presentation. Yes, yeah, so I saw his diagrams, they were just beyond belief. Sorry, go ahead, I'm done. Oh, yeah, yeah. I put it in the chat again, the presentation for people if you want to look at it again. Um, yeah, we have a couple more to go through. So, um, so we then had Dr. Uyin. And I'll let Serena present it because he, she was the one that, that <laughs> engaged. So go ahead. Well, this was really cool in the sense that, um, yeah, it inspired, inspired a lot of discussion. But they were looking at um, ways of, uh, let's see, so they, their technique uh, found, um, they started with dipeptides. I can remember this. And they uh, found it, they used an environment with ATP and a particular uh, endoaminase enzyme. And what they were looking at is how uh, the system would evolve in, in end up in clusters on aggregates of these uh, more extended uh, peptides. Um, and what, you know, what was, you know, initially presented as um, a kind of an irreproducibility in the sense that the complexities are there that you don't always get, you know, it's a kind of a box of chocolates reaction where you don't always get the same thing every time you perform the reaction. And there was discussion about how that, that would happen in terms of initial events changing the energy landscape as the reaction would progress. And, and so the early products of the system take the system down a different, in, in principle, un, somewhat unique course. So you get a very, um, you get a variety of, of results, but the, you know, there, were, there were some basic themes there that were really fascinating. Uh, some of these peptides would, um, you know, would aggregate into these stable clusters. But then, yeah, we got off into more of a reaction uh, or a discussion about um, other ways to, uh, you know, use that as a feature for designing more interesting chemistries and you know, what other kinds of templates could be put in. And, um, and, and you know, of course, we ended up in clays and, and they 
got kind of excited and they may actually pursue some of that work. I've had some follow-up discussions and um, it was, I really enjoyed this talk. It was very fascinating, but I mean, what did, what did, <laughs> I talked too much about it during the what did everyone else think about it? I mean, yeah, I think it was a really fascinating discussion. I had a lot of um, fun listening to you guys discussing this. So, um, and I think it's a really important basic science um, paper of this year. One of the very important ones, I think. Uh, that uh, going along with Marco Pettini. So I hope they look. Did, did you have the background discussion also about his and if that. that oh, that's right. Yeah. The, um, the possibility that these clusters that emerge would uh, have a similar, you know, resonance and natural modes. And that uh, if the, to the extent that, you know, in the Pettini work that they would have oscillating uh, dipolar modes that are similar in frequency to these others, and they would actually have an attract a long term long range attraction that would drive them closer or into more synchronous behavior. So that that was kind of cool too. I mean, it's interesting to think that you could have. Um, these emergent clusters that would find themselves, even though they had uh, independent origins of precipitation or of aggregation, that there would be this long-range attraction just on the basis of having uh, of doing a, a similar dance in the sense that the natural vibration. I mean, it's it's um it, it's sort of accurate, but it's not usually described that way, but when you talk about natural modes and vibrational modes, it's kind of like a dance in the sense. It's just what, you know, what those, the energy available to the molecules and what they do with it and how that gets expressed in terms of vibrations. Sometimes they're large scale vibrations, sometimes they're little small ones. But to the extent that you're vibrating at a particular frequency and, and the parts that are vibrating have dipoles, that uh, that can help find uh, and attract other complexes that are vibrating at similar frequencies. Um, you know, almost like you know, people dancing similar dances might want to aggregate, and, and it's it's kind of I I can't help. I mean, I deeply anthropomorphize molecules because it's a useful construct. So, not that that's what's actually going on. Uh, but there's a rich analogy there. Yeah, and then yesterday we... Oh, did you want to say something? Um, no, I'm just applauding the anthropomorphizing of, of just about anything. <laughs> I don't think you can get through chemistry without a, a, a deep anthropomorphic analogy to chemical behavior, but that's my bias. Agree. <laughs> Yeah, and then we had yesterday a room that was, I mean, she was so amazing and so smart. Um, 
Um, she talked about uh, using molecular orbital based machine learning. And um, so what they did, they, um, like what she was doing was um, using uh, unsupervised clustering algorithm to improve training efficacy and accuracy in predicting energies uh, using this molecular orbital based machine learning. And um, this, um, this approach determines clusters via the Gaussian mixture model, GMM, in, in uh, entirely automatic manner. And it simplifies an earlier supervised clustering approach that was published in 2019 because they eliminate, eliminated both the necessity for user-specified parameters and uh, the training of additional classifier. So uh, these results, um, they were really quite accurately um, being able to be reproduced chemically. Um, and um, yeah, it opened up like a new way of um, analyzing this molecular orbitals and having improved performance with an increasing number of training examples that they showed. Um, and they, they additionally, um, these clusters from supervised or unsupervised clustering was then combined with scalable Gaussian processes um, or linear regression to learn about uh, molecular energies accurately by um, generating this local regression model in each cluster. So this was really impressive. And uh, yeah, she gave a really, she took a really uh, long time to explain this to us. And um, she also uh, said that um, this approach could, since um, another important part was that um, this approach could um, give you insight about the causality. And if that number that comes out of the machine learning um, if it makes any sense. Uh, and um, I think that is very valuable. I asked her if she could, we could, people could use her. Um, basically, she, she said it as soul of the method. If you could take the soul of this method and um, apply it towards, um, for example, um, if some intervention that you're doing is actually helping in patients in the hospital and other like um, more health related um, uh, applications. And she said, yes, uh, because um, causality is a huge problem and knowing if actually a result that your machine learning model comes out with, with makes actual sense and um, her method gives you also insight about that. And I think that's like an additional, no, very uh, important breakthrough that she came up with. Yeah, it was, it seemed like a really interesting talk. I got all distracted and was sort of out of commission. <laughs> also, the training costs are really way lower. You don't need that much training data. 
and um, yeah, so it also improves basically energy needs. Uh, I think she could only use 300 training models and providing 35,000 fold and 4,500 fold reductions in the in the training time. So yeah, it's really impressive her work. Okay, and with that, we had like a roundtable discussion, but usually we only, you know, talk about, oh, shoot, we have one room that we almost forgot, Dr. Gu's room and um, how dogs recognize dog and human. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And this was such a great room, and it's also so important. So usually most species... Um, recognize uh, in the same uh, species emotions and even with that we humans struggle <laughs> but um, dogs do a pretty good job in recognizing and adapting to human emotion also so it's basically the perfect model to um, to study how uh, organism recognizes emotions and then generates a output that makes sense and um, the first hurdle is for dogs that they don't use the same type of inputs that we use to analyze and, and emotion we mostly use facial expression the visual system is is you know one of the biggest um um, for most people, one of the biggest and most important inputs to analyze emotion and then come up with a response. But dogs really don't. And um, so they have to use other inputs and come up, you know, with a response that we can use as an input. So they are, they are really good at this. And um, yeah, so he had to come up with experimental models that address that and kind of overcome previous limitations and and human thoughts that they had to just use the visual system and facial expression and so that's the first thing he he kind of uh, re redesigned in the experiments and uh, yeah he he measured uh, emotion categorization rather than visual differentiation and um, um, yeah, it, I think it was a really fascinating talk and this will again lead to way more, <laughs> way more studies that we discussed and suggested. So I don't know if anyone else has uh, something they want to add, but yeah. It was incredibly interesting um, when we were discussing with them um, the possibilities of just a stronger bond of communication backwards and forwards and um, the tests could still be done on things like different breeds and even mentioned that other types of animals have been tested so this is I, I would say this is the, the frontier of a, a long journey of studying and discovery for this yeah I was it, it was so um, provoking in the sense of 
wanting to know more about, you know, how how the relation between how it's processed in dogs and the emotions and how they're represented and um it he the the speaker was very careful to not overstep um what we know and and he was you know quite clear about how we know so little about you know what's what's going on in the dog brain let alone our own but um it was really fascinating and I keep thinking it's it's a good basis to uh, help interpretation, um, but it's hard to get, you know, it would be hard to do those experiments to really like fMRI on a dog while it's doing it. It's hard to, you know, the practical aspects of getting good data are difficult. Didn't you also mention, Katharina, one of the things you liked the most about um, his particular approach was that he was willing to question um, established methods. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It always annoyed me to go through all animals and put a mirror in front of them and then by that assess if they recognize themselves or not because, you know, if you don't have the eyes in the front of your face to the sides and all kinds of stuff, maybe you just don't care too much about your visual input and so on. Like, that doesn't mean the animal doesn't have some sort of self-awareness and so on. So it always annoyed the shit out of me. So I was so happy to find somebody. Um, yeah, that, uh, that kind of sees it very similar. He didn't say it that way. I just say it that way. So. <laughs> but it was really good. It's really good to know that there's always people questioning what we already think we know, right? I mean, this is how science can really push forward. It's not just about establishing something going forward and forward and forward. It's about checking our notes and going back to what's already there and seeing that happen and just really seeing science at work, the spirit of it. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, uh, we, we offered, a bunch of us offered to go and help in this lab to to do stuff with a cute dog. Oh, you mean that time? Maybe that time when you throw all of our names into the hat, Katarina, and then said, "Jamie can help, and everyone can help." You mean you mean that time we all volunteered? Yes. You mean? Yeah. We volunteered. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely have him back, I think, and hear what he has to, what updates he has in a few months. So let's see. It'll be interesting. And then he will scold us for not going then. Because <laughs> that would make us look, look just bad. <laughs> so we're, we're too deep now. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can analyze some data for him remotely. But it would be also a good excuse to just travel there. <laughs> it really would be, actually. Really would yeah, be. well, we're shopping for castles. Huh? Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So, done deal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that was our week. It was quite dense. We have um uh also really cool week ahead um 
so the Monday room in theory, like in principle will happen, but we might have to reschedule it. So um, just to let everyone know, uh, I'll uh, try, you know, please watch out for um, if something changes on the Monday room, but it would be Dr. O'Neill uh, talking about telomere to telomere human repeat elements. Um, I, I'm really interested in that and um, yeah, let's see um, if uh, the scheduling stays or we maybe have to reschedule. Then Dr. Tour on Tuesday, um, he will talk about plastic waste products and how we can use them to capture CO2 long term. Uh, that's a really interesting room and he's a really established um, scientist in that field. So uh, I'm really uh, honored to have him here uh, on Tuesday. Then we will um, have Dr. Morrissey um, talking about a new human lung cell type discovered. Um, it's still curious to me how we are still discovering new types of cells and even little organs that we didn't know of um, until, you know, just now was just published like very recently. So it'll be really interesting. And then we will have uh, Dr. Uh, McGuire on Wednesday um, at night, uh, 9 p.m. EST, uh, talking about, um, he's from MIT and uh, he will talk about complex molecules that we have never seen before in space. Um, and then on Friday, we'll have a B room uh, Dr. Oshi Weller, he uh, managed to um, create a varroa resistant honeybee and it's really important because we need to save our bees and make them more um, able, make them able to cope with um, these um, diseases that are affecting them and uh, yeah it will be a really cool room Jamie do you remember when we had the interview I, with him I was just going to jump in there with that because I remember speaking to him and he was an absolutely amazing guy and yeah. um he's got a, a lot of interesting stuff on that it's like, especially like um I don't know how America is but like the UK the, the, the bee problem the bee dropping in bees and everything like that so significant issue for, uh, for the environment and uh, obviously for the bees um, and uh, so that's I'm actually quite excited for that and also uh, I have to try and restrain myself from as little bee jokes as possible so we all have to be on our best behavior you know but um, other than that it's going to be very exciting you want to be there or or do I do that again anyway I'm muting now Yeah, he was a he he was a very he was very fun to talk with, and um, he's a really nice and uh, his work is really interested and important. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this next week, and yeah, hopefully hear you all back soon. Uh, come back, ask questions, engage with our guest speakers, and. Um, yeah, give feedback. If you have any suggestions, uh, let us know. Or if you have something, some research that you think is important to invite guest speakers.
thanks for uh, coming back and uh, being part of this group, everyone. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a great yeah. So thanks, everyone. Thank you very much, everyone. And another great week. Hope to see Look you all. Look forward to the next, next week. week. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Great. Appreciate everyone here. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Three, two, one. Bye. Good night, everybody. Bye bye.